All right. Well, that was not terrible. That was not a terrible way to start a service. That was awesome. Thank you, man. That was amazing. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm one of the pastors at Hope, and I'm so excited to be with you all this morning. It is so awesome to be a part of one church that worships in multiple locations, and I'm usually out at the West Des Moines campus. I head up women's ministry out there and various other things, um, but I'm so thrilled to be joining all of you here for worship this morning and all of you up there as well. So we are, <laughs> we are continuing our journey through the book of Jonah. And we're closing in on it. This is week four. I don't know about all of you, um, but I, when they said we were going to do four weeks on Jonah, I thought, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do that, but, because it's only four chapters long, right? But it has been amazing. And what I've loved about it so, so much is that when we think about Jonah, immediately we think of the whale or the fish. Immediately, Jonah, fish. That's what we think about all the time. And so what we've been able to do by taking a slow pass through this is we've been able to explore all the other things that are going on in Jonah in addition to the whole fish thing. Because unfortunately, if being swallowed by a fish and living in the fish for three days and then getting spit out are part of your story, you never live that down. <laughs> never. Uh, that's always going to be what's defi what defines you. But we've been able to explore some of the other things with Jonah. And so that's what we're going to continue to do today. And another aspect of this deep dive that we've been doing this month is we've been looking at a different song every week, and then we've been kind of exploring some of those themes, and we've been looking at how art imitates life, and life inspires art, and all those different types of things. And so today, the song, as you just heard the band do, uh, Pride in the Name of Love by U2, one of my favorites of all time. I've always actually really wanted to be able to do a sermon on YouTube, so I mean, it's not on YouTube, but it just gets to be a part of it. So that's, I'm kind of living my best life right now. Um, but uh, Pride in the Name of Love is a song that YouTube recorded and released. And that song is about primarily, and other things as well, but primarily that song is about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You guys all know that Dr. Martin Luther King, when he was in Des Moines, spoke at First Christian Church, right? You guys know that, but that's part of, going to be part of your story now, so that's amazing. So excited about that. But Dr. King was a man who was certainly a prophet in his time, absolutely. And Dr. King spoke into systemic and structural racism, and he spoke into systemic and structural uh, power, power systems, power structures that also created systemic and generational poverty. And he spoke into all of these truths and all of these things uh, because he knew that he had to, because he knew that in the name of love, he had to speak truth into these wrongs, into these evils. And he knew that he had to do that, even though it was very likely, at some point or another, going to cost him his life. And so as we dig into Jonah, as we dig into this last week of this, I really want you to think about Dr. Martin Luther King and what he stood for. And I really want you to keep this, uh, this quote, this phrase in the back of your mind as we go through all of this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 
I really want you to keep that in the back of your mind today. If I could have kept that up there while I said everything else, I would. So I'm counting on you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And this, these words came from a man who knew more than he ever wanted to about darkness. He was not naive when he spoke those words. This wasn't just like, well, this sounds, this sounds nice. This sounds like a nice quote. No, 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 not at all. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew because he had seen it, that when hate is met with hate, it never, ever, ever, ever produces anything like light or like love, or it never produces anything even marginally good. So now with all of that in mind, we're going to switch gears to the Jonah that we meet in chapter four. And to say that Jonah did not get it is the overwhelming, it's the second theme of this book. The first theme of this book is God's unfailing mercy and grace. And the second theme of this book is Jonah was not so smart. (laughs) You can write that down. Jonah just did not, he just just did not get it. And it's so painfully clear that he just did not get it. So we're going to explore that a little bit. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can open it to Jonah. We're going to end up in chapter four. We're going to spend a little time everywhere. The verses that we heard today from Jonah are short, just a couple of them. And last week, we left off with Jonah in the city of Nineveh. God has let him out of the fish, right? And he said, okay, you're free. But also, by the way, I haven't forgotten what I told you to do in the first place. So now go do the thing. And so Jonah goes to the city and he really just like just does the, I mean, if there's like the bare minimum, like, I don't even know, just like right, right there. And so Jonah goes into the city and without saying much else, he just says, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he doesn't say why. He doesn't say by who. The Bible doesn't tell us that he says anything else other than just those few words. But despite the world's worst sermon, or maybe you're thinking, it was like less than 10 words, it was fantastic. But despite the lack of information, something really surprising happens. And the people hear those words and the people repent and they change their behavior. And most of the reason they do that is because their king looks at the situation and he says, he looks at, he believes in his heart that maybe Jonah is right. Now, why the king is ready to believe that, I'm not totally sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. It makes sense to me that probably the Holy Spirit, God had been moving in and through this whole situation without anybody knowing about it. It probably put a few things on the king's heart possibly, but that's not explicit in the book, so we don't really know. But this is the second time in just three short chapters that somebody who shouldn't have understood a single thing about this, somebody who shouldn't have understood God and what God might be up to at all, it's the second time in three short chapters that the most unexpected people actually do understand and they make some changes. The first were the sailors in chapter one who took Jonah on the trip towards Tarshish. Uh, They're the ones who... um, you know, there was a terrible storm and Jonah's sleeping below deck and, um, and the storm comes up and they're like, what's happening? And then they realize that they got to throw Jonah overboard. And then what do they do? The Bible says in chapter 114 of Jonah that they pray to Jonah's God, who is not their God. They pray to Jonah's God for peace, for, you know, please don't hold us accountable for this guy that we have no choice but to throw overboard. We don't want that on our conscience. Um, And then the storm calms down and all of a sudden done. And then the sailors vow that they're going to worship Yahweh, Jonah's God. And then it happens here again in Nineveh, right? Here's the thing. God's purposes are going to be done. 
God's purposes are going to be done, and that is in spite of the best efforts of the man who was invited along for this amazing ride. Think about that. God didn't need Jonah to do any of this. He invited Jonah along. And then God got busy doing the things that only God could do, inviting Jonah along for the ride. And Jonah has a choice whether he's going to lean in and see God do the awesome thing that God's going to do or whether he's going to close in on himself, whether he's going to uh, not get on board, right? And he ends up going along kicking and screaming the whole way, (laughs) literally. Because when God spares the people, Jonah... Jonah throws an all-out temper tantrum, complete temper tantrum. Jonah says to God, this is, it kills me. This just kills me. Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you're slow to get angry. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. (laughs) Don't tell me the Bible's not funny. That's funny, right? Jonah throws an absolute fit. And the thing that Jonah is so mad about is that God decided to spare their lives. And so after Jonah spends verse 2 there, you can read it, just like yelling at God for being merciful, yelling at God for his unfailing love, and he says, I'd rather die than see you, God, forgive these people. And then in verse 3, God responds in the most awesome way. Like, as a parent, I aspire to respond like this. Um, Because I've got teenagers, and they're fantastic, and I love them. And um, they they were at homecoming last night, and they are so thankful that their mom said they had to come to church at 11. Uh, So they, they will be here. Probably just rolled out of bed, but they will be here. But God so calmly, without a bit of, you know... Stress, God says, Jonah, (laughs) are you sure that you want to be mad about this? I mean, really, Jonah, are you sure this, are you sure you want to throw a fit about this? What he says is, is it right? Is it right for you to be mad about this, Jonah? Is this the right thing for you to be upset about? Now, Maybe what you don't realize, um, unless you have really studied the Old Testament, uh, I just kind of put it together uh, this week um, as kind of looking at these things. But Jonah, and we can go to the next slide there, Anthony, the one with the, yeah, yeah. Um, Unless you've read 2 Kings or maybe Amos, uh, probably some of you have, right? Uh, Maybe you read it this week. Maybe you dove into Jonah and uh, wanted to know more about this. So anyway, Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Because again, Jonah is a prophet, right? So it would make sense that he prophesied to someone else, and he did. Jonah prophesied to King Jeroboam II in the northern country of Israel. And Jonah prophesied to King Jeroboam II that Israel was actually going to be successful in taking back some of its land. Some of the land that had been lost to to foreign uh, folks, Israel was going to be able to get some of that back. Now, the reason that that might be surprising to us is to understand that at the same time that Jonah is telling King Jeroboam II that God is looking on the people and he is pleased with them, at the exact same time that all this is happening and they're going to get some land back, the prophet Amos is also getting messages from God that he's to share with the people. This is all happening all at the same time in Israel. And 
the words that God is giving Amos to share with the people are less than flattering. This is from Amos chapter 2, and by the way, I'm going to edit it so that it stays PG-13, okay? Um, The people of Israel, this is Amos speaking um, to the people of Israel at the same time of King Jeroboam II. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust, and they shove the oppressed out of the way. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their God, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. The people of Israel are a mess. They are doing these, they are treating people with contempt, uh, the way that Dr. Martin Luther King was speaking, the way that Jesus is going to speak with people. They are building and maintaining these structures that are keeping people stuck. They're, if you put up your clothes for security and then people are dressing up in them like a costume and you're naked in jail, this is not a good situation. Jonah knew firsthand because all this was happening at the same time, Jonah knew firsthand that God had been merciful and compassionate to Israel when they absolutely did not deserve it. And Jonah then had the audacity to be upset when God did the same thing for the Ninevites, when God showed compassion and mercy when the Ninevites straight up did not deserve it. So when God says to Jonah, Jonah, are you sure You want to be mad about this? This is not a rhetorical question. (laughs) This is a seriously, you have been on the receiving end of my mercy and grace, and now you want to throw a fit about it? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And here's the best part. In all of this, when Jonah's having his temper tantrum, God sends Jonah another opportunity to learn and to figure it out. And so God sends a plant that grows for Jonah. And while Jonah's waiting out in the desert for stuff to go down, this plant grows up and provides Jonah shade and provides him relief from the sun while he's watching to see it, just holding out hope maybe that God's gonna drop and do something, right? But instead, God sends Jonah a plant, right? And so then the next day, though, a worm comes and eats the plant, and then Jonah has another temper tantrum about the plant. And he's like, God, why did you give this plant to me to take it away? I just, I'm angry enough to die about this. And again, God very patiently says, Jonah, are you sure? And Jonah says, yes, this makes me so angry. This makes me so angry that I want to die. Now, again, Jonah's lucky he's dealing with God, because most of us would have been like, fine, (laughs) right? I can help you, right? But God says, Jonah, patiently, right? He says, Jonah, you're so worried about this plant that was here for a day. Nineveh has 120,000 people living there. Jonah, should I really think nothing of these people? And then, close the book. That's it. That's the end of the book of Jonah. What happens after that, we don't really know. In, in modern-day Nineveh, which is um, actually Mosul uh, in Iraq, and uh, the pictures that you saw earlier are pictures of what the gates of, or the, what the city walls of Nineveh have looked like. They don't, um, because, because ISIS is there, they are going through and trying to destroy as many of those um, monuments to, to uh, Judaism or Christianity. 
so they're getting beat up pretty badly. Um, but in Mosul, there is a place that is known as Jonah's tomb. So people there think or are getting tourists to go there, right, to show them where they believe Jonah was buried in the city of Nineveh. But the Bible doesn't tell us any more about him really after that. But still, certainly, there's more that we can learn from Jonah other than just like how to get out of a fish. And I think it's important that we do that because none of us, I'm looking around this room, and there's not a single one of us sitting here that wants to be the kind of person who would say that we would delight over God delivering punishment to someone. Not a single one of us in here wants to say, I don't believe, that we would really like to see some people really get what they deserve, just really get it. We don't want to be the kind of people who believe, who, who feel that way because we know, we know, right, that if we become someone who resents God's kindness, if we become, some, become someone who resents God's mercy, especially towards other people, other people that we don't particularly care for, right, if we become the kind of people who resent God for God's own character, then any joy or peace or life or Anything good in our life, we're never going to have it if we become the kind of person who resents God for his own character. It just so happens Jesus knew this was going to be a tricky one for us, and he told us a parable in Matthew 20. And in Matthew 20, Jesus tells the story of a man who had a vineyard, and he needed to hire some laborers for his vineyard. So he goes out in the morning at the start of the day at sunrise, and he finds all the people who are standing around looking for a job, and he hires them to work in his vineyard, and he says, guess what? I'm going to hire you. I'm going to pay you the normal daily wage. Here's the vineyard. I'll see you at quitting time. And so they go off, and they go to work. And then um, a little bit later, around 10 o'clock, the man sees a few more people standing around looking for something to do, so he hires them. And he tells them at 10 o'clock, I'll pay you what's fair. Uh, go ahead and go to work. Uh, but he's not done. At noon and at 3 and at 5 o'clock that day, maybe just an hour or two, Maybe before it was time to quit for the day, he hires more people to work in his vineyard. And so then the end of the day comes, and it's time to pay everybody. And so the people who started last, the people who started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they come up first to get their wage. And the man who owns the field pays these people who started at 5 o'clock an hour, maybe two ago, he pays them the normal daily wage for an hour or two of work. And the people in the back of the line who have been there since morning are thinking, yes, we are going to rake it in today, right? And so then, but what they discover is then the man pays each of them the same. So, so the people who came in at noon got the same as the people who started at 5, and the people who came in at 10 got the same as the people who started at 5, and the people who started early in the morning got the same wage the, average, the, the appropriate daily wage as the people who started at 5 o'clock. And as you can imagine, then the people who worked all day are feeling like they got ripped off. And they're watching this go down and they're grumbling. And then the, the owner of the field answers them in verse 13 and he says, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you, and is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? You really want to get mad about that? <clears throat> so I feel like even if we would say that Jonah's attitude is over the top, 
where he wishes, like, legit destruction on people, even if we feel like Jonah's attitude is over the top, there's a lot of us who would also say that it's not fair that someone who worked for an hour got the same pay as someone who worked all day at the same job. It offends our sense of what's fair. It offends our sense of justice probably, right? And I know this is hard. This is a hard teaching. I Grew up in the church. I was fortunate to be able to grow up in the church, but I had a, some problems with a few of the stories. I always related more to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, maybe because I'm the oldest and I had to do everything all the time. <laughs> but I always related more to the story of the older brother. Like, of course he was mad. He's been doing things right the whole time, right? And when I read about Mary and Martha, I feel sorry for Martha because she is busting her rear end to get everything done for Jesus and the disciples and somebody. This dinner is not going to make itself. And somebody has to get this done. And in the meantime, her sister's sitting on her rear end talking to Jesus. And on top of that, Jesus says, yeah, Martha, sorry, but Mary's the one who's got it right. It is kind of a dagger in my heart a little bit. It's a challenging, challenging teaching. So I totally, I totally get that. It's not fair. Oh, it's offensive. It's not fair. And I feel like fair is probably the most, the concept of fair, anyway, makes it just about the most damaging four-letter word in the English language. Like taking all of them into account, I think fair is probably the worst one. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis is an author, a speaker. He's written prolifically after World War II, and he wrote in the screw tape letters. Um, he wrote that whatever, he, he doesn't use gender inclusive language, okay? So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, just read it how you need to read it. Whatever men and women expect, they soon come to think they have a right to. And the sense of disappointment can quite easily be turned into a sense of injury a sense of disappointment, which easily shows up when we sense something isn't fair. <clears throat> super easily, super quickly, without even really having to try, becomes a sense that God is holding out on us. Jonah believed that God was holding out. <clears throat> and much of what we think about this comes down to whether or not we have a mindset of abundance or a mindset of scarcity. When Jonah, excuse me, <laughs> when Jed was talking a little bit earlier about the story of the loaves and the fish and the people came to Jesus with a mindset of scarcity and said, we don't have enough food, send everybody home. And Jesus said, nope, I am abundance. Sit everybody down and we're gonna figure this out, right? <clears throat> a mindset of scarcity says that there will never be enough fill in the blank. There will never be enough time. There are never enough resources. There's never enough love. There's not enough attention in the world, right? So in order to, for me to experience enough time, enough attention, enough love, I have to hold on so tight to what I have. And then with the mindset of scarcity, the only way I know how to decide how I'm doing in the world is to compare myself to the people around me or possibly, maybe both, I have to keep score. If I have a scarcity mindset, I have to compare myself uh, to what my relationships in particular, uh, my friendships, my marriage, whatever, whatever's going on in my life, I have to compare what I know about me to what I, what I assume 
is going on with somebody else. And this graphic here pretty much sums up exactly what is wrong with that. Right? But if you were to say, if there was a third line on there that said, what I think I know about it, it would actually be longer than what someone else's life actually is. We believe that we know everything we need to know about somebody else because we just do, because we see them come in and out of their home. Maybe they're a neighbor or we, we see them on social media. So we know exactly what's going on in our life. That's what we assume, right? And I have to keep track of things. I have to keep track now because I have a mindset of scarcity and I need to know how I'm doing. I have to keep track of maybe how much they have or how much I have. I have to keep track of, are, are they, do they seem to be doing better than me? Are they, are they crushing life more than I am, right? Um, I need to, if it's in my relationships, I need to keep track of what I'm doing for my friends or what I'm doing for my spouse. And I have to keep track of what they're doing for me, what, what maybe my spouse is doing for me. And then I have to make sure that things are equal right? Because that's what a scarcity mindset tells us. And it's everywhere. Friends, this is how the world is built. This is why it's so easy to fall into this. If you haven't thought about this before, odds are pretty good that there's a scarcity mindset that's doing a lot in your life because this is how the world tells us to operate. And here's how you can recognize it. If you find yourself continually, constantly, and much, in a lot of different ways trying to control things that are completely out of your control, that's a scarcity mindset that's telling you to do that. If you can't be happy for someone who experiences success, <clears throat> that's a scarcity mindset telling you there's a, a limited amount of success and if someone else gets it, that you're, then you're not going to be able to, right? If you find yourself comparing yourself to other people, if you have the opinion that other people are just luckier than you, other people just have better luck than I do. They call into radio shows and they're always the eighth caller. What is that about? Other people are so much luckier than I am, right? And if you've taken core or done any of the uh, classes that we've done on identity, you'll recognize this. You know, probably by now, you've figured out that that's the mindset of living like an orphan. That's the mindset of living like someone who has to scrape together and do everything for themselves. But a mindset of abundance, a mindset of abundance is totally different. A mindset of abundance reminds us that we have someone who parents us perfectly. A mindset of abundance is joyful. You can rejoice for other people in their successes because their success doesn't take anything away from you. As you know, with a mindset of abundance, you know that at some sometime, you might be the one who had to work all day, but at another time, you might be the one who got the same pay for only working for an hour. Abundance tells you that comparison holds no interest, right? Uh, an abundance mindset tells you that all this energy that you're putting into comparing yourself to other people to try and please people so that they will give you some of this attention, a love, approval, which is a finite resource. So if they give some to you, you have made it somehow. You know that you don't have to invest your energy that way because the only person's approval that you're looking for is God's approval, and you can take all that energy of striving and invest it in becoming the person who God has called you to be. An abundance mindset tells you, hey, yeah, we thought we were going to build this building, and we were going to knock out some walls somewhere and do a skywalk, and that sounded like it was going to be pretty good. But then God said, hey, I got a new plan for you, and actually you're going to go a little bit north and a little bit west, and that's going to be awesome. And you're like, yes, I can't wait. 
great. I don't even care about that old plan anymore, right? That's an abundance mindset that tells you God is not holding out. God was blessing what you're doing here and he's gonna bless what you're doing over here because you're leading out, letting God lead the way and you are following suit in love to do that. Friends, you'll know you're on your way to an abundance mindset if you can find real joy and real delight in the fact that grace is not fair. If you can delight in the fact that you should not have it, but you do, and you delight in the fact that that person who drives you bonkers, let's be honest, you do not like them. They are not likable. Everything they do is a nails on a chalkboard kind of situation and someone needs to tell them, right? But if you can get it in your head that grace is free and given for them too, even though they're not very nice, if you can find delight in that, then you're on your way to an abundance mindset. Listen, if you're not there, that's totally okay. Remember in Jonah, God kept trying. God didn't shrug his shoulders and walk away when Jonah was like, I'd rather die. <laughs> God was like, no, let, let me give you, let me show you. Let, keep coming, keep trying, right? God wants you to have this so much that friends that I know that, that if you're struggling with this, if you're like, I gotta be honest, I'm thinking about somebody right now and I don't want them to have grace. I had, I've had a couple people in my office this week with a very similar thing because somebody hurt them and it was legit and it was real. So if you're sitting there, friends, just the, the prayer is to ask God, help me get to the point. <laughs> I, I don't have the feelings, God, but help me get the feelings to where I can find, and I can find joy in the fact that grace is for that person as well. God wants to help you answer that prayer. Any of these areas in your life where you feel like maybe you've been holding on, right, trying to keep things in check with those people, with those situations where you've been thinking, I just really don't want to extend grace in that situation, well, you've probably noticed there's not a lot of good feelings there. It feels dark. And the reason it feels dark is because darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Bono uh, is the front man for you too. And so there's this picture here. I want to tell you that I know this is a terrible picture. I know that it's grainy. I know that you can't really see it, but I want to tell you that this is my favorite picture of you two. And the reason why is because I took it. <laughs> so I have very fond memories of that picture. That was, that was fun. Um, Bono is a Christian guy who has really an impressive understanding of Jesus, a really impressive understanding of Jesus. Bono knows that grace is unfair, and he knows that he's on the winning side of that equation, right? Uh, U2 has recorded, I, I Googled it, they have recorded almost 300 songs. That is a lot of songs. I've got a, a video here that we're going to see in just a second. Um, that is actually not one that they've recorded, but you're definitely going to recognize it. I want you then in the interview that comes after that, I want you to listen to how Bono understands abundance, to how he understands fairness and justice, to how he understands Jesus' role in that. Go ahead and get a kick out of how he says the word psalm. It's amusing. 
Um, <laughs> enjoy that. Uh, but while you're doing that, this, this video is amazing. Studio did an incredible job with it. Um, think about abundance. And think about what Dr. King said about light being the only thing that can drive out darkness, how love is the only thing that can drive out hate. I'll stop talking now. We'll take a look. Isn't that awesome? That was awesome. <clears throat> darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hanging on so tight to what we think that is ours, what we think we deserve, that can't bring hope to a world that is so desperate for it. And friends, just to be really, really clear, just to, sometimes we let you draw the lines and put them together, but I wanna put these dots so close together you can't miss it. These systems, these structures that, that uh, were happening in Israel when Jonah was around, these things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about, these things that are written about in the Psalms, these things that Jesus talked about, these ways that, that people are oppressed and kept in their place, Every single one of those things happen because of a scarcity mindset, because of a mindset that tells us that I have to protect what's mine. I have to protect what's mine, so I have to make sure that you can't get access to it. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this approach builds a world where all of these things are upside down and sideways from what Jesus taught us. When Jesus said, love the people who aren't going to love you back. When he said, be generous with those people who will never be able to pay you back. <clears throat> and he says, pray for those people who you know would like to see you fall. That's the world that Jesus asked us to build. And he said, if we don't do those things, then we are no different from anyone else. That's what the world was when Jonah was, was uh, traveling to Nineveh. It's what the psalmist was talking about. It's what Jesus was talking about. It's what Dr. King was talking about. The most amazing thing is, the most beautiful part about all this is that we have nothing to fear or nothing to lose when we lean into being the kind of people who give away love like we're made out of it. Because when we know Jesus, then more and more every day we get to delight in the fact that grace isn't fair and that it's for me and it's for the people that I don't like, for the people that are never going to be able to reciprocate that, right? And increasingly day by day, we're made out of love and we give away love because it's who we are. And we know that it's who we are because in his book, God told us, chapter one, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And first John four, eight, who is us? God is love. That's what God has created each and every one of us to do. And Hope Des Moines, isn't it awesome? Isn't it amazing? Because what if God is saying to you, you know what? You guys have done a great job at practicing how to love. You guys have done a great job at practicing how to love. You are, you are doing an awesome job here on Ingersoll Avenue, Hope Des Moines, but now it's time to stretch our wings a little bit because God's been going before you and God's been preparing hearts and preparing this place for you ahead of the whole thing so that you can move to the corner of 25th and University and give away love to a neighborhood that needs it so much that you can give it away like you're made out of it because God says you are. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Amen. Yay, God. Yay, God. I've got one more quick story for you and then one more quick video and then, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're, we're starting to descend, okay? Uh, so I met a man this week 
who gave away love like he was made out of it. And I hope I never, ever forget it. I didn't actually meet him. I met his family uh, because I was doing his, officiating his funeral service on Monday. And this man was 41 years old and he uh, died of pancreatic cancer. And for the last four weeks of his life, he was, uh, he was in hospice because he was 41 and he was otherwise healthy. And so um, it, it took a while. And people would come to visit him uh, and he would say to them when they would come to visit him, hey, do you know Jesus? And they would answer, right? And a lot of them were yes. Some of them were, you know, you know, Jeff, I'm not, eh, you know. And he would say, here's the thing, I just want to see you again. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not trying to sell you something you don't want. I just want to see you again. That's why I asked. And so they told me when, when we did a service that it was really important to, to him that everybody there at the service know that if they didn't have a Bible, they could take one because we have the Abundant Life Bibles at West Des Moines and they wanted people to know they could take one if they didn't have a Bible. So I'm like, sure, I can say that. That sounds great. What they didn't tell me was that there was going to be gazillions of people there. The chapel was packed. We had to put chairs out. It was all the way to the back. They also failed to tell me that about 50% of them, that's a, a low estimate, were going to be Buddhist. <laughs> And so I was a little worried that we weren't going to have enough Bibles, right? But this is the thing. Jeff was giving away love at the end of his life because he knew that by giving away love, he had something better to offer them than maybe an upgrade in the next life or maybe actually finally nothingness in their best life. If the best we can hope for is nothingness, then what are we doing here, right? But Jeff said, no, there is so much more for you. There is so much more than you could ever imagine because God is a God who multiplies and God is a God of abundance and God is a God who has settled this death issue for us. And Jeff said, as only he could to people who were friends and family that he already knew and already loved, I just want to see you again. Do you know Jesus? Because I just want to see you again. Bono, in his life, knows a little bit about this too. Take a look. Did you hear that? There's something about knowing that death is dealt with that helps us get on with living. <laughs> Those are some true words right there. Knowing that death is taken care of, it, doesn't, it just doesn't give us much room for scarcity. I mean, what are we afraid of? Not having enough time, not having enough life. We get it eternally. We get it forever and we're spending it with God and God is love. And so honestly, if we're leaning into that and we're gonna believe that that's true, I can't imagine what it is that we are, are worried about. The band is up here, as you can see, and we're gonna sing one of our favorite songs around, uh, around here uh, to finish us out today. And the song that we're gonna sing talks about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, reckless love of God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's reckless in its generosity. It's reckless in its abundance. It's reckless because despite that it's given away freely, friends, it was very, very, very expensive. It was very expensive. It cost Jesus his life. And he put his life on the cross for us and he took sin and death that we couldn't deal with. He took it to the grave and then he left it there. And after doing all of that, then he comes to us and he says, you're invited along. <laughs> you're invited along for the ride. I'd really love it if you came with. I'd really love it if you said yes to this love that I have for you. 
but you don't have to. It's reckless. And it's generosity. And it's for each and every one of us. We'll stand and we'll sing.